Strikes Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. And welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea with Scott Martis. This is your co-host Julie Wrench. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Uh, We have an excellent guest lined up for you. Had a phenomenal sighting back in 1985 at Lake Champlain. His name is Bill Billadu Jr., and he will be joining us today to discuss what he and his crew saw that day so many years ago, but I'm sure it's still fresh in his mind as it was yesterday. So without further ado, I want to go ahead and bring on the host, Mr. Scott Marta. Scott, how are you? I'm good, Julie. Thank you. How are you? Excellent. Pretty good. All right. Pretty good. So our guest today is F. William Billadu Jr., who I know as Bill Billadu. I've known him since 1995. He's a friend. And how we met is when I first got to Burlington, Vermont, to begin my champ work, I went through Joe Zarzinski's book, and his list of champ sightings, looking for people that lived in the Burlington area that I could seek out and ask them about their sightings. And I made a list of the people that lived in the Burlington area, and I looked in the phone book, found their phone numbers, and called them. And he was one of the ones I was able to get through to that was willing to talk to me. And back at the time, I had a public access television program about Champ. And I had him on as a guest, and we discussed his sightings, and he also made some sketches for me of uh, what happened. Uh, before we get into the main part of you telling about the sighting, let me just read what, what Zarzinski wrote in his book originally. It says, July 20th, 1985, F. William Billadu Jr., Gerald C. Mylott and Theodore Kessler near southern tip of Willsboro Bay, New York. While boating, they saw two humps exposed that totaled three or four feet, but they estimated the animal's length at 15 to 20 feet. Range 12 to 15 feet, sighting at 11, 11 p.m. Phone interview with F. William Billadu Jr. on August 23rd. 1985, and completed sighting sheet from F. William Billadu, Jr., October 13th, 1985. So, Bill, how accurate do you think that description is? Well, one thing I picked up on, Scott, was the uh, two-hump description. That that was not the case. Uh, We only saw the back of the animal, which was uh, like a typical uh, four-legged animal, except it was in the water. Yeah. Well, let's just let you start off with, you, you You told me the other day you went up to Valcor Island first, right? Well, there's a restaurant up on the uh, the, the west shore of the lake, just below Plattsburgh. I think it's in the town of Peru. Um, a restaurant called the Valcor, uh, operated by a fellow by the name of Harry Lieberthal. Um, and he was catering to a lot of boat traffic. Uh, back in those days and uh, 
So we decided we'd go up there for dinner. There were six of us. And we went up in a well-craft uh, speedboat, which is an open boat without a, without a cabin. And uh, we were able to moor up there, have our meal. And we then decided that we would uh, take our time uh, leisurely, go down the west shore of the lake um, and see what was happening at the marina in Willsboro Bay. Um, so we proceeded uh, to do that. Um, I have to comment that the lake that night, there was absolutely no wind. The lake was like a tabletop. It was glass smooth, and you could see virtually anything that was sitting on the water or poked its head through the water. Uh, so we were very fortunate in that regard because if there had been any disturbance on the surface, we probably would not have seen uh, Champ. Um, anyway, getting back to the story, we'd gone into the marina and were coming back out, and we were headed west uh, before we made a northerly turn to go back up out of the bay. And uh, Jerry saw the animal first. It was on our left-hand side ahead of us, and it was crossing our bow. And we were doing probably four knots, and the animal was doing uh, uh, probably the same speed or close to it. Crossed in front of us, and after it got past us, Jerry turned the boat uh, to the starboard, and we followed it uh, uh, closely, um, and we actually got within four or five feet of it. And the interesting thing was that we didn't startle it. Like, uh, if you'd done that with a fish or most any animal, it, it would have skittered away on us. But uh, this animal acted like uh, it didn't care that we were there. Um, I was able to see, I was probably, oh, standing in the boat would put me about six feet above the water level, or the boat level, and then maybe another two feet, so eight feet away. I would say the animal was eight feet, I could have jumped on its back, it was that close. And uh, it was getting dark, and I could tell the texture of the, the, the skin, that's what it looked like, skin, not a shell. Um, it was absent of any fur or scales, and I couldn't tell what color it was. I knew it was a dark tone, not black, because it, was, it had a tone lighter than that, but I couldn't tell if it was green, gray, or brown. Um, and it stayed with us for probably, oh, a minute, minute and a half, and then when it got ready to go, it just went down like a submarine. It didn't... It didn't dive down like it was startled. It just kind of went out of sight, and that was the end of it. Back you to you, Scott. Telling, yeah, you were telling me that you thought you could saw saw the ridge of a, of a backbone and possibly the indication of ribs, right? Uh, you know, I couldn't see the, the ribs, but you could see what looked like the backbone, although you couldn't distinguish individual vertebrae. It was just sort of a ridge that went down the, the center of the back. And the, uh, the animal, uh, the propulsion is interesting. It didn't do any fishtailing or it didn't do any porpoising. It just moved ahead at about four knots, uh, which was interesting. Um, the exposure above the surface was very gentle and gradual and from top to bottom maybe five inches and when it got to the high point you could see water displace across its back 
Um, and that's how we, uh, we were able to tell that or estimate that it was about the size of a pony. And, and then there was some width to it. From side to side. The, the width, uh, well, I'd have to extrapolate a little bit, you know, but I could tell the way the water would run off the side uh, as as it would come above the surface that it probably, you know, had a rib cage that would be very similar in size to a pony. Hmm. And the interesting thing about the the supposed method of propulsion. Well, the only thing I can think of that wouldn't uh, require body motion uh, would be flippers. Yeah, exactly. Or a motor. And you don't think it was a machine, so. Yeah, well, jokingly, I said it either had flippers or a propeller. But there was was no undulation of the body uh, vertically or laterally. It, it, It just... Something uh, something was propelling it uh, without uh, movement of the torso, and so logically you have to conclude that it was flippers. Yeah. Hmm. Well, then that that the, the three animals that come to mind when you mention this are, are actually four would be a sea turtle, a sea lion, a penguin, and this prehistoric marine reptile, which I'm sure many of our audience are familiar with, called a plesiosaur. Well, that's what I think it was, the latter. Uh, sea lion would have to come up for air because they, they have to breathe. Uh, we were there with this animal for quite a while, and whatever it was didn't have to come up for any air while we were there. Yeah, well, reptiles can get some of their oxygen directly from the water, so they still have to breathe air, but not as often as Not as frequently. Yeah. They have a lower metabolism generally, and uh, therefore they don't... Well, it wasn't exerting much energy in doing what it was doing. I mean, it was just leisurely going along um, in in a very relaxed manner. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Gerald Mylott was your brother-in-law, correct? Right. And so the, you, the two of you and this Theodore Kessler had a business together, correct? No. No, we were just uh, – well, the connection was Camp Tecumta, which is a uh, uh, a camp for kids with uh, cancer. Mm. And that's how we all came together. But we just decided to take a night off, go out, and uh, – and, and have a nice evening uh, over at the Valcor restaurant. And the other three people were your wives, correct? Right, exactly. They were sitting at the back end of the boat. Now this is this is a thirty foot boat, and uh, uh, they were busy talking and, and not quite aware of what it was that we were all squawking about up in the front, so they didn't come up to look. Mm-hmm. Now. Uh, has anybody else, other people besides me, uh, you know, talked to you at, at length besides Zarzinski about your sighting and offered any interpretations? I did a uh, short interview with the New York Times. They called me. Uh, I don't know how uh, how they knew about it. Probably Zarzinski. Um, 
but I didn't go into a lot of detail with them. And of course, I've I've done other uh, 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 venues like uh, Monster Quest and uh, the uh, the shooting that we did at uh, Faison Harbor. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, 2016, right before we made that sketch, I was working with a couple of guys that are making a documentary. It hasn't come out yet, but you remember we did some filming for that? Yes. Down in yep. Shelburne Bay? Yeah. So, according to what Zarzinski's got written down here, he's got the time is 11 p.m. Was it that late? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, it was. Was it a bright moonlit night, it, it, or was it, it was it, it was kind of moonlight? Hmm. You know, well, well, it was dark see. enough. It was dark enough uh, so that I couldn't tell the color, but we were able to visually see well enough. It might, you know, actually, it might have been a little bit earlier, but not much. Were there any lights? Well, on I the wouldn't boat? put it any earlier than say nine thirty. But were, it, were it there, might have been as late as 11. I, I really, was, you know, that was a long time ago. Was there any lighting from the boat? Was there any what? Lighting from the boat. No. That helped. Uh, no. Okay. Yeah, well, I've, you know, I've been out on the lake at night before, uh, and, you know, you can see things. I, I don't know what well. the moon phase was that night, but it was... Uh, no, it wasn't pitch black, or we wouldn't wouldn't have seen what we saw. Yeah, right. and the fact the fact that the water was calm probably helped a lot too. Mm. Well, we wouldn't have seen anything. Any break in the water at all, we wouldn't have seen anything. I mean, mm. that, that, that's all you see are little chops in the water, and uh, things could go right by you, and you wouldn't even know they were there. Yeah. Well, I remember back in '95. When I interviewed you on my show, we talked about if you could see anything like an indication of the base of a neck toward the front end of the animal. And and I, if I remember right, you told me you could see some, some kind of curved shape going down into the water like it might possibly have been the base of a long neck. No, I don't, that's, I don't recall that. I don't recall that. I mean, I... Just trying to think of what I might have told you. Uh, perhaps that ridge that we talked about, um, I could see the very front end of it, and it, you know, I might have said, well, it didn't look like it had ended right there, but I didn't see anything forward uh, of that. Yeah, well, you know, I'm just going by what you told me back in '95. Yeah. Uh, I still have that on video, but, you know. Sometimes these things are hard to remember after such a long time, you know. Um, but I still have the sketches that you made for me uh, back in 95. Uh, one of them I used on the slideshow for this program. Um, so you've told me before you have a degree in biology from UVM. That's right. Now, did this help you? in trying to interpret what you saw at the time? Oh, very much so. Very much so. I, I, you know, I kept my imagination in check because of my <laughs> zoology background. I think a lot of people, when they see these things, they, uh, uh, they kind of get carried away with what they're seeing. And then, then, of course, when they try to recall it, 
Um, they add humps and tails and fangs and whatever else. Well, I think, you know, you, you hear these reports of multiple humps, and I think probably what's going on there, they're seeing waves behind the animal as it's swimming and interpreting those as multiple humps. Like, say, there's a one big hump at the front and a neck and a head up out of the water, and behind it as it's swimming, there are these waves that, you know, I mean, you can see waves a lot of times on the lake. You can see waves, and if the light's hitting it a certain way, it looks black and it looks solid, and it's really nothing more than water. And well, I think, I think that's, that's what leads to these fanciful drawings of these multi-hump yeah. creatures that uh, people think is champ. Then they add a head with horns and fangs and a long tongue, and you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, they've kind of right. overlaid the, the folklore image of what yeah. champ is supposed to look like over what they really saw. I- exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, by the same token, you have to be careful with that, too, because, you know, people have it in their mind, oh, that champ is looks like a plesiosaur, you know, and that can get layered over the top of these sightings, too, by the same Yeah, token. I just, you know, when I, when I sort of side with the plesiosaur people, I go back to the, to the, uh, uh, the way that the animal propelled itself. Yeah. Well, you look at you all know, the other I, sightings. I, you look at all the other sightings, like Christine Ebert and Charlie Hours' sightings with the long neck standing up out of the water, and combined with what your observations, it, you know, it, it naturally leads to the idea of something that at least looks like a plesiosaur at the, at the very least, you know. Well, I think in their sighting, didn't the animal actually come up out of the water onto the shore? Well, it was almost onto the shore. It was in shallow enough water that it would have been sitting on the bottom. Yeah. But it didn't actually leave the water. But it was in very shallow water. It was right next to their light, next to the boat dock. And it had its head out of the water. Yeah, yeah. She actually had two sightings within three weeks of each other. And the second sighting, it it was basically the same place. But it was a smaller animal, and it was a different color. Uh-huh. And Charlie, she uh-huh. called Charlie, and he come driving up right as it was heading out. So he saw a pole-like object stand up out of the water, like, 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 a, like a telephone pole standing vertically out of the water, swimming out into the darkness, is what he, the way he described it to me. So uh-huh. He saw the tail. He didn't see as good as... Now, what she saw was, I mean, she saw the whole thing right under the light. She saw the head and the neck and a hump and all that. What she, she made a, a drawing for me, too. It's very plesiosaurish looking. Right. And you've known, you've known Charlie and Christine for a long time, right? Oh, yes. I knew them before the, the sighting. I've known Charlie for 60 years. Yeah. Well, I've, I've known the two of them as long as I've known you for 20, 23 yeah. years. So, um, another sighting that is similar to yours is Pat Robbins' sighting, and you know him too, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, he was 
a manager at McAuliffe Office Supplies in Burlington. I think he owned it. Yeah. And then something happened, and he went somewhere else, but he's still in Burlington, as far as I know. Yeah. Well, let me just read the description of his sighting from Zarzinski's book, and we'll compare the two. Hang on here. Mm -hmm. His sighting was like five years before yours. And this is what Zarzinski has in his book. It says, July 1980, Mr. and Mrs. Patrick S. Robbins and a friend off Burlington, Vermont, Breakwater, 10.30 p.m., moonlit night, 20 feet. Whale-shaped creature looked like an upturned boat, smooth-backed, dark or gray in color. Observed from boat while cruising. A letter from Patrick S. Robbins, April 10, 1981. Now, I also interviewed him on the show back in 95 or 94, and uh, <clears throat> he seemed convinced that what he saw was a small whale. But he was careful to, to say that he didn't see any kind of vertical undulation, and he didn't see anything like a dorsal fin. So, essentially, he saw pretty much... The same thing you did, but had a different interpretation of it. I guess perhaps maybe he wasn't ready to make that leap to to something like a plesiosaur, so he rationalized it as, as a small whale that had gotten in the lake somehow, either through the, through the Richley River or uh, the Hudson, and somehow managed to blunder its way in. That's what he thought, but, but he was careful to, to admit that he didn't see any kind of vertical undulation like you would normally see with a whale. And he told me he had seen whales in Hawaii, and he saw, you know, saw them porpoising and saw the tail flukes come out of the water and all that business. So, Right. Yeah, um, and I think... What, did he have a people, reference point to estimate the size of, of what he saw? Yeah, he said it was about 15, 20 feet long. Yeah, that that fits with what we saw. Yeah, I mean, from from you know from the interview that I did with him in '95 and what you talk about, your sightings are almost identical in size and what the creature looked like and all that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I you know obviously if they're here, there's a breeding population. Um, that almost certainly have to be. Because um, it all adds up. If uh, if uh, Chris Hebert saw a little one and a big one, I mean, there's there's proof of that pudding right there. And, and uh, you know, that's un- yeah. undeniable that there's more than one. Well, there was allegedly a sighting of a juvenile about <laughs> three feet long. In Button Bay back in 1993 by two women, so that could have been a baby if it was yeah. a snapping turtle. But from what yeah, where's that at? That that Button Bay. That is. That it's on Lake Champlain. It's down in the southern, going toward the southern part of the lake. Oh, okay. It would so be Button south. Bay is also part of that lake. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a bay in Lake Champlain. It's south. Of where he had his sighting. Huh. Well, that's interesting right there. See, it's a big lake. I mean, it's it's 120 miles long. Wow. 
What is, what so, is the deepest um, area of the lake that they're aware of? I mean, how deep does that go? 400 feet. Okay. But there's wow. a large chunk of the middle part of the lake that is regularly over like 250 feet deep. So. That, that's over by the cliffs on the New York side, isn't it, Scott? Yeah, yeah, south of Charlotte. South of the Wood Yeah, Ferry. across from Basin Harbor. Yeah. Uh, yeah are there any underwater ca- caves or caverns there as well? Probably, probably, because okay. I know of two, possibly three, that are above ground now, or above water now, and they were formed during the Champlain Sea period. The thing you have to realize is that 10,000 years ago, what is now Lake Champlain was only a small fjord in a larger marine embayment that mostly covered Quebec and Ontario. And then that got cut off, and it slowly downsized into modern-day Lake Champlain and the Ottawa River and, you know. But back then, there were whales and seals living in it. And if we're correct about there being plesiosaurs in there now, then there would have had to have been a small population of plesiosaurs living alongside those whales and seals. And they have proof of that from fossils from that time period that have been found. They found seal bones over in Plattsburgh, New York, and they found a beluga whale skeleton in Charlotte, Vermont, in 1849. You can go to um, Perkins Geology Museum at the University of Vermont and see that whale skeleton in a glass case. Huh. Yeah. So that's interesting. So what happened was, what happened was the land rose up in Quebec and cut off the marine influence. And when that happened over over time, <coughs> what was the Champlain Sea gradually became fresh water and sort of dried up. And part of it became the Ottawa River, and and the other part became what's now Lake Champlain. That's so how the history of uh, whales, sea, uh, seals, and whales in that particular area, sea-dwelling yeah, creatures, ocean-dwelling creatures. Exactly, yeah. And another important key to this whole thing, piece of the puzzle, is that there are various fishes living in the lake now that are marine fishes that have adapted to fresh water from the time when the seals and the whales were living there. So this is proof that something could have survived from that prehistoric sea because these fishes have done exactly done that. The rainbow smelts, the landlocked Atlantic salmon, and the sea lampreys spend their whole life in Lake Champlain and, and spawn in the rivers. Normal salmon would go out to the ocean to spawn, and, you know, but these don't. They're landlocked, and they spawn in the rivers huh. in Lake Champlain. So it is plausible, you know. In order to make it work, you've just got to have a big enough population for them to be able to have a healthy genetic breeding population. Um with, with that in mind, Scott, uh, what yeah? is the northernmost sighting and the southernmost sighting of Champ? Well, 
there are allegedly sightings up in the Canadian part, which is up okay. past uh, Missisquoi Bay. This is just a small portion of Lake Champlain up there, so some sighting up there would probably be the northernmost. Um, I really don't know, but, you know, you, once you go past Basin Harbor and start heading down toward Ticonderoga and Crown Point and all that stuff, or Ticonderoga, you know, the lake becomes really thin and shallow. There are sightings down there, but they're very rare. But it's more, you know, it's more like a river running from, like, Ticonderoga down to Whitehall. It's very it's very narrow and, and shallow. I think maybe the deepest it gets around there is maybe 20 feet deep. There's a deep channel it runs through there. Yeah. But from, like... From like Split Rock up to maybe Mallet's Bay, that whole area, especially right up Burlington and you know, and um, that's the widest part of the lake, you know, going over toward Port Kent. That whole area is very deep and and it's wide too, you know. So. Well, what I'm getting at is a large enough area to support a, a healthy breeding population. Oh, absolutely, and I think there's enough food in there too. Oh, they without say a doubt. that they say this is this is very important to this whole question. They say that it takes, in the long run, 500 individuals of a species for it to be healthy over a long period of time. Over a shorter time span, it takes 50 of them. Now you would think, off the top of your head, that's a lot of animals. Now check this out. You know how rare that sturgeons are seen and are encountered in the lake, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. They say that there's a historical population of lake sturgeons in Lake Champlain of 3,000 adult animals. And they see how many a year, one or two? Yeah. So imagine, that's that's 3,000. That's six times the 500 individuals you need to, to... Maintain a, a, a species or a genus over a long period of time, right? Okay, let's say we've only got 500 champs. That's a lot less than the sturgeon population. So, I mean, I know it's hard to imagine that many animals in there. I don't think there's that many animals in there now. There might have been 500 individuals back in the Champlain Sea period. But it was a much larger body of water with much more biodiversity, you know. And, I mean, obviously it could have supported them because it was supporting big whales and seals. I mean, they found bones mm-hmm. of big whales up in Toronto and up in Ontario and Quebec that were living in the Champlain Sea. So, obviously, there was enough food back then. Now, let's say there's there might be 50 <laughs> individuals in Lake Champlain now, or maybe they were a few hundred years ago. They could be in the process of dying out as we speak. So we just don't know. There's Some people think that the Loch Ness Monster is already extinct and died out, and that explains the lack of <clears throat> many good sightings in recent years. I don't know. But for all we know, I mean, we really don't know anything. We, you know, we haven't established what these things are or how much food they need or any of that, you know. So who knows? They might they might be in the process of dying out 
there could be three of them in there right now. We just don't know. You know? So, who knows? I think they're still around, obviously, because it was a really good sighting in September of 2015 of a back and a long neck. So, I think they're still around. And you've got some really good videos that have been taken over the last two decades, like... uh, the Bodette video, which was shot over around uh, the Yall Sable River, which you would have passed that area going from Valcor to Willsboro. You would have passed right by that area. You've seen the right. Bodette video, right? The video it's right up the side of the boat. You see the head, the neck thing moving. That's that's unbelievable. I, that That's an incredible uh, exactly. video. That and the Mansi photograph are just absolutely the best photographic evidence you've got. And whatever is in the Bodette video appears to be alive because it's moving. I mean, you clearly see it moving and changing shape. And you see what looks like a head on the end on of the neck. On a long neck. Yeah, and it moves in relation to the shape of the neck. So it's <clears> not a piece of wood. It's something that can move, unlike a stiff piece of wood. <clears throat> That was in 2005. Then there was another video shot at Oak Ledge Park in May of 2009, which is impressive, too. It looks like some kind of a giant turtle. Mm. So, you know, there's there's still good indications. And also, in November of 2016, when the, I was there with the Japanese... We were over at Split Rock, and we had a baited camera down about 80 feet in the deepest part of the lake. And something came up. You see an appendage that might be a flipper or a tail-like structure come up and touch the bait and then leave. I mean, it's clearly something alive. And it just looks like a round, grayish flipper or a possibly a tail, but whatever it was, it was coming up to investigate the bait. And we got that on video. And then last year, me and my partner, Will, went over to the All Sable River where the Vodette video was shot and got a plesiosaur-shaped blob on the sonar. So there are still things going on. That doesn't mean that these things are definitely monsters or unknown animals. It just means that there are still phenomena that is unexplained going on in Lake Champlain, which can be interpreted as possible unknown animals. Right. Well, let me ask this, Scott. If it is a plesiosaur, what, uh, for, for some listeners who may not be as familiar with that particular uh, creature, what type of diet would it need to sustain itself? Well, they generally believe that there were there were typically two types of plesiosaurs. There were short-necked, large-headed ones, and then there were long-necked, small-headed ones. But there were also, in between those two extremes, different variations. You had grades going all the way from one extreme to the other of intermediate types. But they generally believe that the long-necked, small-headed types, which would seem to be a match for what people are seeing in Lake Champlain, primarily ate fish, and they probably ate crayfish, and they did eat um, 
cephalopods, squids, and, you know, things of that nature. But obviously we don't have any freshwater squids in Lake Champlain, so most likely they're eating uh, fish and crayfish. They probably might scavenge uh, shellfish off the bottom, you know, mussels and there's a lot of mussels in Lake Champlain. There is some evidence that plesiosaurs preyed on small birds and pterodactyls. So you might have one occasionally taking a small bird at the surface, too. There was actually, back in 2004, there was actually an alleged sighting of a champ trying to attack a seagull. So. Wow. But they've actually found... Plesiosaur bite marks on fossil bird bones from the Mesozoic. And they also found pterodactyl bones in the belly of one out in Kansas. So, really? um, Yeah. Now, I I probably need to explain that plesiosaurs are thought to have been extinct for 66 million years at the end of the age of dinosaurs, the same extinction. But. My own researches have found a series of out-of-place plesiosaur bones that have been found in deposits after that that stretch all the way from the end of the Mesozoic up until the Ice Age. And the common explanation of how these fossils got in these much later deposits is that they were reworked, which is a real phenomenon. What that is... It's where a a fossil bone is knocked out of its original sedimentary deposits and worked into younger sediments. That's why they call it reworking. Okay. And so and it's caused by various things, uh, earth movements. Uh, they think when the glaciers came through in the Ice Age, they ground up old prehistoric seabed from the age of the dinosaurs, and that's how the ones found in Ice Age deposits got to where they are. But that's not, you know, 100% proven, so it's very possible these could actually be plesiosaur remains to indicate that they survived beyond the extinction, which would make sense. They're very fragmentary. They would fit in a shoebox, but the thing is, they discovered the coelacanth fish in 1938, it was supposed to have been extinct for 80 million years. And the post-Cretaceous um, fossil record for the coelacanth would fit in a shoebox, too. So, huh. Yeah. So, Bill, you got anything you want to add to that? No, that's fascinating, though. Uh, the only thing I'd like to get back to, uh, some of the questions that people are are asking uh, about extinction um, and are they breeding, I think you have to look at some of the sightings that you have. Uh, Chris Hebert, having seen a juvenile, uh, certainly supports uh, uh, the health of the, of the community of, of uh, plesiosaurs. If they, yeah. were, if they were on their way out, they wouldn't be breeding, would they? Probably not. Uh, we don't know how small the population is. If it's a very small population, they could be suffering from inbreeding 
which could cause all kind of congenital birth defects and things of that nature. We just don't right. know. The only way to the only way to to know that knowledge, first you got to verify they exist with a type specimen of some sort. Then you have to figure out where they're living at, and you have to observe their natural history. You have to watch and observe, and see how they live. And we haven't been able to get access of of that quality to these animals. Yeah, I mean, it's still a mystery. We just, you know, we have possible videos and photographs of bits and pieces of them, but none of them show the whole animal. And we have the eyewitness, you know, testimony, which is great, but the, the, the downside of that is you can't go back in a time machine and be there when it happened and verify what somebody's telling you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And the further in time away you get from something, the more fuzzier the memories of it become, you know, sometimes. And I know that from experience because I had my own champ sighting. Oh, yeah? Um, Where was that? That was in July of 1994 at Battery Park. I watched it through binoculars, and I saw... This big garbage bag colored hump, blackish green hump, and it had a smaller lump coming out of the middle of it. Then it turned to the right, and this smaller object, which I think was a flipper, it was, I believe it was swimming on its side with one of its flippers up in the air, and it swam along for a little bit, and then just sank. And this was, this was all over in like, 10, 15, 20 seconds, it was done. You know, it was a boom, there it was, and it was gone. I assume I was like, I don't know, a thousand yards away, something like that. But I could see it really good through the binoculars. So the coloring yeah. was similar to what Bill saw? I assume so. I've heard other people describe it as being a, a dark, blackish, green garbage bag color. And I've heard some people describe it as gray. Oh. Pat Robbins described his creature as grayish looking. Hmm, well, I wonder if that would uh, uh, be a part of perception based on uh, time of day, shadowing, uh, cloudiness, brightness. Well, I'm sure, yeah. And I would imagine yeah. whether the animal, if it's, if it's sticking its back up out of the water, it would probably make a difference in the color if it was still wet or if it had dried in the air. would probably make a difference in the color. And the way the sun's hitting, all sorts of factors. You might have reflections of light from, from the waves casting light on it, you know, reflecting on it that could change the color. There's all sorts of potential factors. Right. Even whether the person was wearing sunglasses or not could... Yeah, you know, a lot of people have said that they think champ might be an animal that comes and goes from the ocean. It's not in the lake all the time. The problem with that, there are so many dams and canal systems on the interconnecting rivers. You've got nine canal locks down on the Champlain-Hudson Canal. As a seal tried to get in back about 
two years ago, and they had to catch it and get it out of there, but it only made it into, like, the first or second lock. You know, the, huh. basically what I'm saying, it's not impossible that something could get in and out, but it would be very conspicuous trying to get in and out. Bill, yeah. Have you, ever, have you ever gone up on the Richley River? No. Well, I hear that parts of it, you know, like up around St. John's, Sir Richelieu, there are rapids and it gets really shallow. And it, and I've been told that it's so shallow up there that sometimes if the water's really low, they actually have to physically take the boat out of the water, put it on a trailer and go around and put it back in the water to be able to navigate that water up there. But there are two dams and also a canal system up on the Richelieu before it gets into the, the St. Lawrence. Well, logically, I don't think that they're coming back and forth. Well, I just think it would, you know, we'd know, we'd get a lot of sightings up, you know, in the Richley River and down on the Hudson if that was the case. You know, I don't think they could be that inconspicuous. But I, I think it makes much more sense that you've got a population that's been landlocked since the time the Champlain Sea and adapted to fresh water. Well, if they were coming back and forth, there would be sightings outside the lake, and we're not getting those. I know. I mean, you have sightings of sea serpents in the ocean, but not really a lot of sightings in the Hudson River or the Richley River, which they'd have to come. That's right. Um, Another uh, bit of food for thought uh, if these animals have been here for eons, they obviously have a lifespan of probably 30 to 50 years, if that. Then they die. Yep. Where are the remains? How come we haven't found remains on the bottom? I don't know. That's one of the things that I'm going to be looking for this trip. I'm specifically I mean, there should be thousands be, of them. You would think, yeah. Um, a lot of time. Sea turtle bones are found inside of underwater caves, and it's not clear whether they go in there on purpose to die or whether they blunder their way in there and just can't figure out how to get back out and suffocate. But they they find uh, sea turtle bones and manatee bones. They've been found a mummified alligator carcass in an underwater cave. So my plan for this summer... I've got a geologic map of Lake Champlain, and it shows where the deposits of sedimentary rock are around the rim of the lake. There's isolated deposits of limestone and dolostone in different parts of the lake. Now, the significance of that is the caves that are left over from the Champlain Sea that we know about, they were created by wave action of waves Digging into sedimentary rock, you know, which is soft enough that it can, that the waves can, water action, can actually dig out a hole in that type of rock. So the plan is, is to go around to the places that we know there are sedimentary rock, like uh, Westport, Willsboro, down around Ticonderoga, and look for underwater caves. I've got a diver working with us this year. 
And that's what he's going to do. We're going to go to these places and look for unordered caves. And if we find them, he's going to go in, go in there <clears throat> and try to find bones of a recently dead champ or something. Yeah. That would be quite a find. Absolutely. And yeah, you, they could be radiocarbon dated to determine how old they are, and if they're you know not old from from the Champlain Sea period, that would mean they weren't fossil. They were recently dead. Yeah, we should answer a lot of questions, Scott. Yeah, and if it's not fossilized, mm-hmm. you could get DNA from the bone marrow. And a DNA right. sample would tell you what kind of animal it is, what its closest relatives are, and would give you genetic data to tell you how healthy, genetically healthy, the population is. Might even be able to estimate how many they are in the lake right now. So, yep, you know, fascinating. And that would also, if there was enough bones and they were unique enough that you could say, well, this is a new animal, that would qualify as a type specimen. That would put Champ in the biology books. Now, right. that's a tall order. Yeah. But to me, you know, you want to really, people talk about, oh, we want to protect Champ. You really want to protect Champ, prove they exist. Mm-hmm. Then there will definitely be real legislation passed to protect these animals. I mean, there there are statutes on the books right now that supposedly protect Champ, but they're really just for show. You know, if if somebody wanted to go out on Lake Champlain with a big harpoon and 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 say, "Oh yeah, I'm going to go kill Champ," how are you going to prosecute? somebody for attempting to molest an animal that technically doesn't really exist. Think about that. Mm-hmm. Right. That's really that's really the situation you're in right now. It would probably, you know, if, if you arrested somebody for trying to hurt Champ and took it to a court, it would probably be laughed out of a courtroom. Think about it. The way it stands now. Mm-hmm. I believe there's something out there but we have to prove it. We have yet to get the physical evidence to prove that it's there yet. Well, that's that sounds like a vicious cycle because in order to prove it, you need a specimen. And to get a specimen, someone well, might get it in their head, well, I'm going to go uh, harpoon me one of these and prove they exist. And So it's like I uh, totally do not want to harm how them. do you even well, go about this unless... Yeah, so. There's two ways you can do this without hurting one. You can do like I'm talking about. You can you can find bones of a recently dead one, if you're lucky enough. Right. The other way is if you encounter a live one and can get close enough to it, they make these things called biopsy darts. We're bringing one of those with us. If we can get close oh, yeah, enough I'm to it, they, with those. they use them in whale and shark research all the time. They're totally harmless to the animal. All they do is they go out and they get a little tiny tissue sample. And if you can retrieve that, you can get a DNA sample from that one little bitty piece of skin. I don't think that that one little piece of skin, even with a unique DNA signature, would be enough to qualify as a type specimen. However, if you could combine that with bones and a skeleton, that would qualify as a type specimen. Then you could give them a Latin name and make them a real animal 
describe them in the scientific literature, and they would be established as real animals and would be protected. That's the way to go about this, because all, all the eyewitness testimony in the world and all the clearest video and photographs are never going to convince the skeptics. Mm-mm. Especially today with the kind of, uh, you know, special effects technology that right. exists in the movies, they're always going to be able to turn around. So, oh, somebody made that on a computer. My afraid of that. So, well, the you know, other that's thing the way biology works. Science. You have to have an animal. Has that it's been extinct this many millions of years, so science doesn't like when things fly in the face of what they think they know either. Well, yeah. That's, you know, uh, a lot of skeptics kind of look at it as an insult to to suggest mm-hmm. that something from the age of the dinosaurs is sitting in a lake in Vermont right off the shores close to the University of Vermont, and they don't know about it. So Let's yeah. talk about coelacanth. Well, yeah, that's a perfect example. The coelacanth is exactly what we're talking about, you know. And they thought that the ones, the population found in 1938 was the only one that, the, oh, they're extinct everywhere else. Then 60 years later, they found a whole new different species of, of them in Indonesia. So we really don't know. There might there might be populations all over the world we don't know about in the same kind of habitats. They seem to want to hang around volcanic uh, vents <clears throat> in deep water. A coelacanth, you can't go see one in an aquarium because you bring them up from the depths that they normally live at, they die mm. because they live under extreme pressure, and you bring them up, and the trauma of the loss of all that pressure kills them. They can't live. They don't know how to keep one alive to put in an aquarium. So. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um So we might want to explain to people how plesiosaurs move through the water. Mm-hmm. You look at a sea turtle, and you see the, the front flippers, but you look at the back appendage, and their legs, they still have toes on the back legs. And the reason why is that they come ashore to lay eggs. There are anatomical constraints about turtle biology that tie them to the land to lay eggs rather than giving live birth in the water. However, plesiosaurs did not have that problem, and because of that, they had two fully functional sets of front and rear fully formed flippers without digits. In other words, their their front flippers and back flippers essentially looked the same. So they had two sets of, of functional flippers. Uh, paleontologist Robert Barker liked to call them double penguins because some of the plesiosaur flippers were externally the same shape as a flipper's, uh, a, a penguin's wings. And if you see penguins swimming underwater, they're moving very much like they think plesiosaurs swam, basically flying with their wings underwater. Now, imagine that penguin wing-flying thing, but with two sets of wings. 
That's essentially how plesiosaurs were moving. There's a lot of debate about whether the, the two sets of flippers moved in unison together or moved in alternate strokes. They think they might have just moved up and down, pushed backwards. Some even think they may have moved in a figure-eight motion. Um, there's all sorts of debate about that. Um, our friend Max Hawthorne, you know, he's got the idea that the two different sets of flippers moved in a different plane and that the front set moved up and down and that the rear set pushed backwards. So, but, you know, there's all kinds of debate. There's like three different theories about how they may have moved, and um, they've come to this conclusion using all sorts of methods. They've used <clears throat> flow dynamics. They put dye and water next to mechanical plesiosaur flipper models to see how the dye moved in the water as it was passing by the flipper. They built plesiosaur robots, experimental robots that swim like they think possibly plesiosaurs did. And they've also used computer models, advanced computer models with mathematics that they built on computers. So there's all sorts of... But, but the main idea is is that they, they use their flippers to move through the water by flying. And that sort of movement would theoretically give you a, a smooth movement through the water without undulation of the body from side to side or up and down. And that would have been very hard for plesiosaurs to do anyway because their body was built very much like a turtle's is. It didn't have a it wasn't quite as stiff, but it was it was built with a, a relatively stiff backbone but a mobile belly muscles and ribs that that they think helped propel the flippers with a movement sort of like the belly would move in and out like an accordion and the limb girdles would move in and out along with that movement, and, and also the primary muscles that moved both sets of flippers were on the bottom side of the body. There may have been, you know, similar muscles up on top that they just haven't found evidence of yet, and they think, too, that possibly some of the flipper muscles were anchored to the base of the neck and the base of the tail, and they think the tail was relatively stiff, but it did have a small tail fin that was used as a rudder to help it swim. And they think that ridge on the back might have had something to do with helping them to make directional changes, too. Well, how fast could one of these creatures dive? I really don't know off the top of my head. I mean, there's been estimates. But they think yeah. they were relatively fast. I know that, that a leatherback turtle, which is the largest living marine reptile, has been clocked at 20 miles an hour. That's pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they can but normally, out of, I think it's like, like eight miles uh, right an hour. What's that? So they can duck out of Dodge, like, right now, if they needed to, if they felt threatened. Yeah. Well, they, they know that plesiosaurs dived fairly deep because there's evidence of what they call a vascular necrosis. That's like the bends where lack of oxygen actually killed part of the bone from being down 
diving too long. So hmm. they found evidence of that on most wow. of the source, too. One thing I wanted to get in was that plesiosaurs gave live birth in the water. They found a plesiosaur out in Kansas with a fetus inside of it. And because of this, they think that they only gave birth to very large single young when they gave birth to it. And they probably took care of the babies up to a point, and they probably lived in social groups. So they plesiosaurs might have lived together. They would have taken care of their young, and they might have lived together in pods, kind of like some whales do. Oh, yeah. So huh. the thing is, plesiosaurs giving live birth would mean you wouldn't see them coming ashore to mm-hmm. give birth. They would give live birth in the water like a, like a dolphin or a whale. But relative to these monster sightings, there is a small handful of amphibious sightings. So I would think that it's a good indication, at least these creatures, whether they're plesiosaurs or not, that are seen in Lake Champlain and Loch Ness and various other places, have a limited amphibious ability to to at least come ashore once in a blue moon, but they usually don't go very far from the water. And they're usually described as being very awkward moving around on land. So Mm. I would think that says that they have a limited amphibious ability. They still debate about the fossil plesiosaurs we know about, whether they were amphibious or not, because there's all sorts of debate about how how well-connected the pelvis was to the backbone. This is very important relative to moving around on land. There's also debate about how stiff the flippers were. They think if the flippers were too stiff, they wouldn't have been able to drag themselves on a beach like a sea turtle. Mm. So those are questions, you know, that still... They they still have some of these questions about the fossil plesiosaurs, much less any hypothetical descendants that may still be around that may be modified with an additional 60 billion years of evolution. Yeah, a lot can happen in that period of time. Yeah. So, hey, Bill, so what do you think about all this? Well, I think it's very fascinating. I, You know, I just wish that we would get some results with with these investigations. Uh, you just got to feel that there's one out there waiting to be seen by you. Uh, <laughs> see, the problem is... Right. The problem is... This this stuff, you know, so the bit like is so big, and it's so expensive trying to to do all this stuff. And usually, if you're there, you have a limited amount of time, maybe a few days, a week, a couple of weeks, to attempt to do all this stuff. You know, so it's. Well, maybe in this age of everybody carrying a camera or a phone with the ability to take pictures. We'll finally get some decent evidence. Well, that video that was shot at Oak Ledge Park was shot on a cell phone. Yeah, that's we need more of that. Uh, but that was uh, that's the best I've seen. That was very convincing. 
Well, I, well, I'm talking about the other video, the turtleish one. Well, I'm talking about the one right next to the boat where it comes yeah, up and around that, that and a, you see the neck with the head on it. Yeah, that was shot with a video camera, but it wasn't shot with a cell phone. But the other video from 2009 was shot with a cell phone. The guy just happened to be going out for his morning walk where he normally goes, and there it was. And well, it that seems really that's the way it is. Well, of that I'm expecting an image. it. Here it is. Yeah. Hmm. You know, deer will swim underwater too. Say that again, Scott. I said deer will swim underwater too. I was really surprised to find that out. You know, normally you see a deer swimming, it's got its head up out of the water. But recently, there has been videos and photographs surfaced of, of deers. Completely submerged swimming underwater. I just found the other day a video of a moose swimming underwater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but every that few seconds cool. it will stop and bring its head with the antlers up out of the water. So there's no question about what it was. You know. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. In the first few seconds of that video, you're like, "What in the world is that?" Yeah, it, it looked really strange. Well, yeah. somebody sent a video around a few days ago of a turkey swimming. Yeah, I saw that too. Huh. Well, you know. So when I are you leaving, Scott, to go to the lake? Probably about two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. Um, and who's going with you? Staying, well, um,. My my friend Will is sick. He can't make it. Yeah. But I've got friends up there. My friend John Cronin's got access to a boat, so we're going to be using his boat. <coughs> Jeremy Sanborn is going to be diving for us. He lives in Massachusetts. He's going to be coming over. And my friend Jason Lords, or Jason Lordvice, who does primarily Bigfoot research, has a drone camera. He's going to let us use that part of the time. So we plan on going back up to the area up in the Albert Passage where the general area thought where Sander Manzi's photograph was taken. We're going to try to dive there and do some investigation there. We want to go back over to where the Bodette video was shot at uh, the El Sable River. Uh, Oak Ledge Park where that Olsen video was shot if there's any kind of a a den or something under there where the creature disappeared Uh, and we're going to look for those caves too and we're going to try to investigate Mm -hmm. the caves we already know about so I've got a list and how long are you guys going to be out there probably about three weeks Wow. I wanted I wanted to stay longer, but my friend John, who has the boat, has got to have surgery on August 30th, so we're going to have to cut it short because mm-hmm. of that. So we're going to try to get in three weeks, and then I'll come back next year. And for year our listeners, we will be trying to do a uh, live podcast, or if not live, then pre-recorded with Scott uh, while they're out in in the water. So. Gonna try to, yeah. I'll call you when I get there and we'll try to figure something out. Yeah. 
That that'd be interesting. So, Bill, I don't want to cut you off. You have anything else you want to add? No, I think we've covered it all. Yeah. Well, I thought we were going to go a full um, 90 minutes, but I think we just about run out of gas here. Yeah. Well, well I we got to save it for another one. Keep in touch and stay <laughs> tuned for uh, anything that we can uh, provide to you with Scott and the gang out on Lake Champlain in the coming weeks. So uh, we will definitely let everyone know in advance what so our Julie, plans can are. You, can you can you pull a plug early since we've run out of stuff? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and okay. close the show. Uh, listen, right. I want to thank uh, Bill for coming on. We appreciate your um, willingness to come forward and, and talk about your sighting. And, Scott, uh, again, great show. We want to thank everybody for listening. And stay tuned for another exciting episode of The Haunted Sea with Scott Martis. This is your co-host, Julie Wrench, for Monster X Radio, sponsoring The Haunted Sea. And everybody have a great week. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.